James 2, chapter 20. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This morning, just wanted to, just, uh, just a few other uh, changes that I uh, wanted to bring you aware of around here. If you saw the front of the bulletin this morning, you will notice another name on the front of the bulletin, uh, Director of Sports Ministry, and, and that would be Jared Greist. And uh, Jared is, has uh, accepted a dual role here at Mount Calvary and Mount Calvary Christian School. He's going to be the Athletic Director of Mount Calvary Christian School, and he's going to be the Director of Sports Ministry uh, here for the church, kind of overseeing the Upwards Ministry. And we're really, really excited uh, for Jared to take on that new role and excited to have him on board and looking forward to, to God using him to, uh, to help uh, give leadership to those ministries. And so we're, we're really excited about that. And, uh, and so uh, you might, that might make some more sense as you look at the back of your bulletin and see under the Mount Calvary Christian School, we have, we have a few openings that uh, we're looking for uh, to, to fill. And one of them is the director of advancement, and that was Jared's old job. So, uh, no, we didn't get rid of Jared. Uh, he, he is just taking on a new position, and we're excited about that. And so we're looking for a director of advancement. We're also looking for a, a part-time middle school Bible teacher, teacher that will have classes in the morning. So uh, you can be in prayer for, for those positions, and as we try to, uh, uh, to finalize for, the, for those positions for the new, uh, new school year. So I encourage you to to keep those items in prayer. Uh, we're excited to have Dr. Sheard with us and looking forward to the new school year and uh, just need to fill some of, those, some of those positions. So just wanted to kind of bring your attention and formally just kind of announce here in, in, in a service that uh, Jared will be uh, the new uh, director of sports ministry here at Mount Calvary, and we're excited about that. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to James chapter 2. Uh, we'll be there. Uh, we're also kind of going to do some review of Old Testament since we're talking about two Old Testament stories this morning. So uh, you can kind of hang on as we get through there. But uh, uh, this morning I was thinking about, you know, we're all about wanting to see proof, aren't we? I was getting my hair cut yesterday by my wife, and, uh, and she gave me some proof that I was getting older. Uh, as, she was, as we were sitting in the garage and she was cutting my hair, we were done, and she makes this comment to me. She says that, you know what, there's not as much hair up there as there used to be. And I'm like, thank you for that proof that uh, I, am, I am getting older. I, I appreciate that. Not that I didn't notice that as I was uh, looking in the mirror, but uh, she, she gave me some proof. And, and, and as a, you know, if you've ever followed along in some um, some situations where hostages have been taken. Uh, if you've ever seen uh, uh, stories about hostages being taken or uh, they've made some TV shows and movies, in, in the process of, of hostages being taken and trying to negotiate for their release, they have something called proof of life. Uh, they, the, the negotiators, uh, when talking with the hostages, they ask for proof of life. 
Usually it's a picture or a video that proves that the person that they're trying to negotiate for or trying to get loose is alive and well. Uh, they ask for a proof of life, and, and, and once they see a proof of life, that enables the negotiation to continue, uh, letting them know that, hey, this is, this, is not, this is not worthless, that we can seek some resolution, that that, that person is, is still alive and there's still hope. And so it's a, it, it, it's a proof of life. It's a very important, very key thing when it comes to hostage negotiation. Well, we've been in the book of James, and, and last week we, we talked about uh, deeds, demons, and dead faith. And this week we're going to talk about a patriarch, a prostitute, and real faith. And as I think about the book of James, James is, is really on a quest for proof of life. He, he's on a quest to see what is true faith. If you were here with us last week, we said that the theme of James is faith without works is not real faith. And we talked about that last week. Faith without deeds is dead. Genuine faith is never by itself. It is always accompanied by action. Now, we said last week very clearly that salvation is by faith alone. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we trust him as our Savior, we we are saved, and that's by faith alone. But we said that after, after salvation... Our salvation should never be alone. That, that once we've accepted Christ as our Savior, there should be an outworking of that faith, of that salvation in our everyday life. Faith is the means of salvation, and good works is the evidence of that salvation. And so last week, we, we, we looked at this, this idea of, of false faith is faith without deeds, it's not real faith. And we gave you two examples, two, two case studies. The first was from James 2, 15 to 17. And we said, false faith offers kind wishes to those in need, not compassion and action. And if you remember, it, it talks about a person who comes along, someone who is hungry and cold, and what do they do? They give them some wishes, say, hey, I hope you keep, I hope you keep warm and well-fed. They do nothing to help them. And, and James says, that's not real faith. That's false faith. It is full of kind wishes, but not compassionate action. In James 2, 18 and 19, we see the second case study. And, and, and that's with the demons. And even the demons know theological information. They know who God is. They know who Jesus is. And we said false faith knows information, but not transformation. It knows information, but not personal transformation. And so those were kind of the negative examples of of what false faith is. And this morning, James is going to point to two more positive examples of what true faith is. And so in James 2.20, we read this. It says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Gotta love James's upfront nature doesn't pull any punches, does he? He gets right to the point, and he basically says, you know what, you got, if you still don't get it, you're a fool. You still don't understand that faith without works is dead. Okay, let me give you two more examples. Let me show you two more examples of, uh, of what true faith is. And so we're going to look at these two examples this morning. And, and, and the next example, the case study number three, is the example of Abraham's test with Isaac. 
It's Abraham's test with Isaac, and, and, and that's what it alludes to here in James chapter 2. And as I was reading James chapter 2 this week and, and thinking about that, I think, you know what, we need to go back to the Old Testament to really get an idea of Abraham's life. And, and so we're going to kind of go through a quick whirlwind tour of Abraham's life. And we're going to look through Genesis 12 to 22 in like five minutes. So hang on. Here we go. Genesis 12, 1, 1 through 4, it says this about Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now here in Genesis 12, we see God asked Abraham to leave family and friends from the comfortable surroundings of everything that he's known. And they ask him to travel to a far off country, a new land that he's not familiar with. And God tells him, you know what, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a great, into a great nation, the nation of Israel. And it's through the, that nation the nation of Israel, that God would bring the Savior into the world. And so in essence, here in, in Genesis 12, God is promising Abraham a son, a child when he's 75 years old and Sarah's 65 years old. Now, that might be a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around uh, this morning, but as I was doing some, some research, you know, life expectancy for them in this time period might have been 120 years old. So there's still, in, in, in their time, there was still a slim chance to have a first child. Today, it would be kind of like couples in their 40s who want to have their first biological child. There, there's a slim chance of that happening. So, so you know, there, there still is this chance, and, and God tells Abraham, you know what, I'm going to bless you and make a great nation through you, basically saying, you know what, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. Well, 10 years after that initial promise happens, 10 years pass, and God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 15.1, and he says this, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So God speaks to Abraham, and, and, and Abraham responds in verses 2 and 3 and says this, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Basically, Abraham says to God, if if you're my really great reward, why don't I have a son yet? Where's my son? When's this promise going to happen? When is this all going to take place? God responds to Abraham in verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 15, and he says this, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son is coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. God tells Abraham to go outside, and outside there is a little different than outside here. If you go outside here in Elizabethtown or, or in a big city like New York City or anything like that, it's hard to see the stars because there's a lot of light around us. They're in the middle of nowhere. They have no street lights. 
And God tells Abraham, go outside at night and look up at the stars. They're everywhere. And he says, you know what? I haven't forgotten my promise. You're going to be a great nation. Your descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. And then we come to verse 6 of chapter 15. And, and, and verse, verse 6 here is the first reference in, in Scripture to Abraham's faith in God. And it says this, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. In the New King James it says, and he believed in the Lord. This tells us, and, and it tells us officially that Abraham has faith in Jesus Christ. He has, he has true faith in God. He, he is a believer. He is a God follower. He knows God. He has a relationship with him. And so we see that, that this is the first stated, uh, stated reference to Abraham's faith. The story continues. In, in chapter 16 of Genesis, just to kind of sum that up, 10 years pass since chapter 15. Abraham and Sarah are getting older. Sarah decides to kind of take matters into her own hands. They, they're still, they still don't have a child, so she gives uh, Abraham her, her servant, Hagar, thinking that she could build a family through her. And we know that Hagar has a son and Ishmael. And we know that after Ishmael's born, even Sarah and, and Hagar, they have, uh, they have some issues. There's some jealousy there. Things are not going well because Sarah took matters into her own hands in chapter 16. In chapter 17, we see Abraham is 99. And God again comes to him and reminds him that he's going to give him a son with Sarah. And what does Abraham do? He laughs. Abraham laughs. He laughs because he's going to say, God, I'm going to be 100. And Sarah's going to be 90. And we're going to be first-time parents. I don't know about you, but you know, there's a reason we have kids when we're young. Because we have the energy to chase after them. And Abraham's saying to God, we're old. We don't have the energy anymore. You're going to give me a son? That's humorous. He responds and, 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 and tells Abraham, you know what, you can't count Ishmael as that son that I'm going to build the nation through. That, that, that's, not, that's not my plan. And he tells him that Sarah will have a son, and, he will name, and, and you will name him Isaac. And Sarah overheard the discussion, and she too laughs because she says, I'm old and Abraham's worn out. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to happen. And God responds to both with this, with this phrase, this question. He asks them, and just to, to kind of get their perspective back, is there anything too hard for the Lord? In essence, God says to Abraham, laugh all you want. But by this time next year, Sarah's going to have a son. It's going to happen. We forward on to Genesis 21, verses 1 to 3, and we see, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. She became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. Finally, Isaac is, bo is born, the son who God is going to use to build this great nation, the son that, that God has promised. Everything is great, and, and, and they live together with a happy ending, Right? Well, we, we kind of bump into chapter 22 of Genesis, and this is, this is what James is, is referring to in James chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. It's Genesis 22. It's this story of Abraham and Isaac and, and Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac. 
And in Genesis 22, it says this, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham delayed, right? He put it off and said, I don't think it's a good idea. That's not what it says here in Scripture. It says, early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up to his father and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham answered, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now this is the story that James is referring to when he gets to James chapter 2, verses 21 and 24, and he says this, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. Now, if you read through these these verses here in James chapter 2, depending on what version you have, you notice the word justify comes up a few times in this passage. And when the word comes up a few times in the same verses, I think it's something for us to kind of keep in mind and look at. And so as I was reading through that, I think it's important for us to understand the doctrine of justification this morning. This theological concept of justification, because, because part of what, what, what I think that... Uh, how we understand what James is is saying, we need to understand the concept of justification. And justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which we are declared righteous or not guilty when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's the instantaneous legal act of God when he declares us righteous. 
Our sins are paid for when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, this declaration involves two parts. There's two parts to this idea of justification. The first part, you know, our, our sins are declared forgiven. We have no penalty to pay for our sins in the past, in the present, and the future. That's the first part of justification. Our sins are forgiven. The second part of justification is, is we are declared righteous in his sight. Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. Now you might say, that, that sounds really, really confusing. I want to give you just a, an illustration, a, a picture here that kind of helps me, helps me understand this. And, and if you go to the next slide, the picture should be there. This, this is a picture of justification. And hopefully this will help you make it, make it a little more understandable. But the circle represents our lives. And in the first circle, there's a lot of minus signs. And that is our sin. That represents our sin. So when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are justified. And, and our sin, in essence, is credited to Jesus Christ. He takes our sin. He's the one that paid the price for our sin when he died on the cross. So that's the first part of justification. But the second part of justification is he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And that's, that's represented by the circle with the pluses. That represents us after we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Christ takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. So when God looks at us after we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Christ's righteousness living in us. That's why we can have a relationship with him. That's why we can be his friend. That's why we, you know, because God can't be close to sin. So justification is a very, very important, important uh, doctrine for us to understand. And it's important for us to understand that justification is, is we are declared righteous when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He declares us righteous. So now, if you're like me and you read James 2.24, you might be a little confused. In James 2.24, again, it says this. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. That doesn't quite sound right, does it? Uh, that kind of goes against this idea, this doctrine of justification. And so uh, the question is, is James confused about justification? I mean, is he confused about it? After all, Paul writes a lot about justification, and Paul's pretty clear about that. And remember last week we said that oftentimes people think James and Paul are on, the, on different teams, and yet they're not. But, but Paul says this about justification in Romans. In Romans 3, uh, 28, it says this, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Doesn't sound like James 2, 24, does it? He goes on in Romans 4, 1 and 5, and he talks about Abraham's faith. He said, What shall we say? that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. In fact, Abraham was, if, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Again, it's talking about Abraham and saying he is declared righteous because of his faith. In Romans 5.1, it says, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We look at Romans 3, 4, and 5, and James 2, we say, Paul and James aren't on the same page here. You know, James must have his theology messed up. But you know what? In order for us to understand what James is saying, we need to understand that the word justify in Greek has two primary meanings. Has two primary meanings. The first meaning of the Greek word justify means this, to declare righteous. And that's what Paul was talking about. That, 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 that's the doctrine of justification. That's, that's when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're declared righteous. That's what Paul was writing about. The second meaning of the word justify is to demonstrate righteousness, to prove to be righteous. And that's what James is writing about. Warren Wearsby said it best. He said, how was Abraham justified by works in James when he'd already been justified by faith in Genesis 15? By faith he was justified before God and his righteousness declared. By works he was justified before men and his righteousness demonstrated. See, Paul and James aren't talking about they're not on different pages when it comes to justification. They're just using the word justify two different ways. Remember, like I said last week, James believes that salvation is by faith alone. But he said, you know, genuine salvation, when we accept Christ and we believe in him, our lives change. It should produce good works. And here James is saying, you know what? The overall pattern of, of Abraham's life is he faithfully demonstrated righteousness by his actions. He believed in God, and he, he followed God. His actions, his actions lined up with his belief. John MacArthur said, When a man is justified before God, he will always prove that justification before men. John Calvin said, Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. It's never alone. And James is saying, you know what? That Abraham believed God. He, he had a faith in God, and he proved his righteousness by serving God, by being obedient to him. James 2.22, it says, you see that his faith, talking about Abraham and his actions, were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Again, salvation doesn't require faith plus works. It's by faith alone but James is stressing that good works is the constant byproduct of saving faith. Good works is the constant byproduct. It's the constant evidence of a genuine faith. So when James says that his faith was made complete, this genuine complete faith is when our behavior is consistent with our belief. That's what James is trying to that's what James is writing about. That's that, remember, he's writing to Jewish Christians who know all the right things. They have all the right information. And because they've had all the right information, they felt like they can do whatever they want. And James says, wait a minute. True faith works. It's not about information. It's about transformation. True faith works. So in James 2, 23, James goes on and says, and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. I love that last part of that verse. Abraham was called God's friend. Do you know why Abraham was called God's friend? Because not only did he have faith in God, but he was obedient to God. That's why he was called God's friend. 
because he had faith in God and he was obedient to God. You know, Jesus talks a little bit about this in John 15. Verses 12 to 15, he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because your servant doesn't know your master's business. Instead, I've called, your, called you friends. Everything that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. James is saying, you know what? Abraham had faith in God, and he was justified. He was declared righteous at that moment. But you know what? Abraham demonstrated his righteousness the rest of his life by the way he chose to obey God. When God said, go to a foreign country, he left. When God said, take up your one and only son, you're going to sacrifice him on the mountain, he got up the very next day and left. Abraham was demonstrating his righteousness. He was living out his faith. So we see, there's Abraham's example. And James is, is telling us that genuine faith is useful with God. Genuine faith justifies us. It declares us righteous before God, and, and, and it demonstrates righteousness before men. And so, so that's the first example, is the example of Abraham. The second example is the example of Rahab. It's, it's case study number four. And it says this in James 2.25, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did, when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So we go from the patriarch to the prostitute. He was a Jew. She was a Gentile. He was moral. She was immoral. He was well-respected and a man with means. She was despised and living in despair, living, living in, basically in the gutter. And yet she was a woman of faith. She was a woman of faith. And for us to understand the story of Rahab, one, one verse in James, James 2 doesn't do, us, doesn't do her justice. We need to go back to Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua chapter 2 says this about Rahab. It says, Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies for Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy on the whole land. But the woman had taken the men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch, the, catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So here we see that uh, it's a very familiar story to the, in the nation of Israel. And they're getting ready to enter the promised land. And Joshua sends out two spies to check out the land and go to Jericho the fortified, the, 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 the invincible city. And he wants them to gather some information. So basically they set out on this undercover mission. And where better to go than to Rahab's house? She lived along the wall and Rahab was a prostitute. She had lots of guests coming in and out of her house. It was the perfect undercover spot. It was the logical place to hide. 
Now, Rahab has entertained a lot of foreign, uh, a lot of foreign people over the years. And she has heard a lot of things about this nation of Israel who was approaching from, from Egypt and their God. She had, she had heard about the miracles that he, that he performed. She had heard that there was only one God, Jehovah. She had heard about the nations of Israel's high moral and, high moral and ethical code. Perhaps she has become disillusioned with her own culture, who treats her as a nobody, who says that she's no good, treats her as an outsider. She meets these spies, which furthers her desire to know the one true God. She, is, she must have sensed an immediate difference between these two men and the men who come to visit her frequently. These men were men of high morals on a mission. They treated her with respect. They were sure of their God and living for something more than just temporary pleasure. And we know that the king of Jericho comes to her and says, hey, send those spies out. And at that moment, she's got a choice to make. Whose side is she going to be on? Will she side with her culture or will she side with the nation of Israel and the one true God? And I love in Joshua Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11, it says this. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We have heard what, what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, who, who you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like faith to me. She has heard about this nation of Israel and all these great things that the God of Israel was doing. And at that moment, she puts her faith in God. Her mind knew the truth. Her heart was stirred by the truth and her will acted on the truth. That moment, she chose to side with Israel and their God. Rahab's faith was proved by her actions. She had faith and she proved it. She demonstrated it. She, she, she said, I'm going to serve God. So she welcomed these men. She hid them and she sent them away safely, believing that the God of Israel lives. Abraham, Rahab's faith led to action. And she showed that real, real faith is useful with men. Genuine faith acts to help serve and meets the needs of others, even when it's costly. Rahab was sticking her neck out on the line. She was siding with Israel. She was going against the king. But you know what? She was, she was determined that it was the right thing to do because she knew who the one true God was. And she had faith in him, and she acted on that faith, and hid the spies, and sided with, with, with Israel. Two great examples. James chapter 2 is, is a great passage of scripture, and, and it's taken us two weeks to get through, and if I could wrap it all up in just, just a few brief moments, what I've been trying to say the last two weeks is this. First of all, false faith offers no service to fellow man. False faith offers no service to fellow man. Remember from James 2, 
uh, 15 to 17. It offers warm wishes. It, it, offers, it offers trite words, but not any compassionate action. False faith offers no service to fellow men. The second point is false, false faith offers no obedience to God. False faith might know theological information like the demons knew, but it, it, knows, it knows no personal transformation. It doesn't choose to believe and obey. It just knows, and that's false faith. However, true faith, true faith offers costly obedience to God, and that is Abraham's life. He obeyed at all costs. His faith was genuine And he demonstrated that righteousness by the way that he acted. He obeyed at all costs. That's true, true faith. And finally, true faith offers costly service to fellow men. And that's Rahab's example. She put herself at risk and she served the Israelite spies because she knew who God was. And that is why James says in in, in verses 2, 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. And what James is trying to say is, you know what? If you have genuine, true faith, it will work. That's why that's the title of uh, this whole series in James, Faith That Works. James is saying, you know what? You are justified. You're declared righteous when you put your faith in God. But you know what? Each and every day you have to demonstrate that righteousness. You have to demonstrate it. And that's why, that's why James says, you know what, faith and works, you know, we're justified by faith and works. Our faith has to be living. It has to be active. And in James 2.26, it says, a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A changed heart leads to change behavior. Good works is evidence of our genuine faith. You know, like I said in the, in, in, in the beginning, you know what, our world's looking for proof. And you know what, we have an unbelieving world that's looking around, that, that, that in essence have been held hostage by the evil one, by Satan, and all his lies. They've been held hostage. You know what they're crying for? They're crying for a proof of life. They want to see a proof of life. They want to see faith in action. Before they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they say, we need to see some proof of life. And you know whose job it is? It's our job. It's our job. James says the responsibility is left to us. If we have true faith, it'll prove. It'll be living. It'll be active. It'll it'll make itself manifest in what we do. Now, that's not to say that, you know what, we just need to, 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 to do good things and people will come to Christ. We need to share, too. We, we need to share the, the hope that we have and the reason we have that hope. But you know what? People just don't want to hear our words. They want to see our actions. They want to see us have a complete faith when, 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 our, when our behavior and our beliefs match up and come together. And you know what? When we live out our faith, we'll earn the right to communicate our faith to those who are desperately in need of hearing about it. So the question that I want to leave you this morning is, is there proof of life with your faith?
Is it alive and well? When you leave these doors, when I leave these doors, and believe me, I'm, I'm not talking just to you, I'm talking to myself. When I walk out of these doors and go throughout my week, when people watch my life, do they see evidence of the faith that I say I believe? I truly believe if we want to make a difference, if we want to make more and better disciples, our faith needs to work. And it just doesn't need to work in the walls of this church. When we come and volunteer to serve or come to services, it needs to work when we're out and about all throughout Elizabethtown, on the sports field, at our jobs, uh, wherever, when we go shopping. People need to see it. Is your faith alive and well? Is it working? James says true faith is a faith that works. It works. I hope you have true faith. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Thank you for the opportunity just to just to be challenged. And Lord, you know my heart and you know that, that if no one needed to hear this this morning, I did. Because it's so easy to claim information about you. It's so easy to, 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 to say that I put my faith and trust in you and, 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 and I know that I'll spend eternity for, with you in heaven forever and go and live my life the way that I want to live it. As we look at Abraham's life this morning, we, we saw that, you know what, genuine faith, true faith means costly obedience to you, costly service to others. You saved us to serve. We live in a world that's desperately wanting to see true and vibrant faith, to see us live out what we say we believe. And Lord, it's my prayer this morning that as a church, as, as Mount Calvary Church, that we would be full of individuals with true faith, faith that works on Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, and Friday and Saturday, and not just Sunday morning. Father, we need your help. We need your strength. We need you to enable us to have the courage to obey and serve even when it's costly. Help us to honor you. Help us to prove our faith genuine, full of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our God.